It's Wednesday, April 6th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Elon Musk has acquired a 9.2% stake in Twitter, making him the largest shareholder. That's 73 million shares worth about $3 billion. And now, he also has a seat with the board of directors. Musk has about 80 million followers and has been critical of Twitter in the past. Sarah Needleman, tech reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for where many think Elon could play a big role at the company, issues of content moderation. Next, are some people super immune to COVID? There are many who have had COVID multiple times, while others have avoided infection altogether. Researchers are currently studying healthcare workers whose bodies fought off infection, but never created specific antibodies for it. The hope is that understanding what kept them from getting sick could lead to better vaccines. Madison Muller, health reporter at Bloomberg News, joins us for more. Finally, the use of certain drugs in small amounts is beginning to be claimed by wellness culture. Microdosing of magic mushrooms, or even MDMA, is getting more attention and even rewriting the definition of what it means to be sober. While research remains limited, many feel that the positive effects of small doses can be beneficial to their lives. Luke Winky, contributor to Vox, joins us for the new Soberish. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. It sounds like you know he'll push for what he believes is the case, and uh, given his you know high position. You know, as CEO of Tesla and his role with SpaceX, um, this is not someone who's necessarily going to back down easily uh, in the face of opposition. Joining us now is Sarah Needleman, tech reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. It's my pleasure to be here. Well, let's talk about some interesting news we got this week with Twitter and Tesla CEO Elon Musk. He acquired a 9.2% stake in Twitter to become its largest shareholder. I guess uh, it averages out to 73.5 million shares worth about $3 billion. He's now joining the board of directors for Twitter. So everything's moving pretty quickly for him. And he just has an interesting relationship with uh, the platform itself. And uh, everybody's kind of curious to see what impact he's going to have. So Sarah, tell us a little bit more about it. Well, um, like you said, uh, there's a lot of speculation about what he might do now that he is joining the board. However, he has been pretty vocal about some of his ideas and generally his his perspective on content moderation. So, for example, he's talked about the possibility of having an edit button. And he's also talked about being a free speech absolutist. And so, given his new position on the board and uh, his popularity on the platform itself, he's got something like 80 million Twitter followers. Um, he could have a lot of influence in where this company is headed. He's still one person, but he's certainly an outspoken person and uh, people really you know, pay attention to what he has to say. And so it's no wonder that you can imagine that Twitter's uh, board and executive team will, will be listening closely as well. Totally. And so what is it going to be like in that boardroom when he comes in? You know, Jack Dorsey, who founded Twitter, he's still on the board there. He stepped down as CEO this past November. Musk owns more Twitter stock than than he does. So, I mean, in, he in a more powerful save probably in that room, in that sense of things. But given statements that he's made about Twitter in the past, would it be kind of a hostile environment when he gets in there? How do you think that's going to play out? Uh, well, I mean, he's certainly uh, not afraid to speak his mind, and he's been openly critical of Twitter on the platform itself. And so uh, I think it's unlikely that his 
personality uh, would change in a in a boardroom environment. Um, maybe perhaps a little bit more restraint when talking face to face to people. But this uh, Mr. Musk is not someone who is shy and you know gently polite. He's he's going to be frank with people and tell them exactly how he feels, even if they may not like what he has to say. And uh, it sounds like you know he'll push for what he believes is the case. And uh, given his you know high position. You know, as CEO of Tesla and his role with SpaceX, um, this is not someone who's necessarily going to back down easily uh, in the face of opposition. I did see that that he might be uh, in some small trouble. I don't know for the manner in which he disclosed this investment in Twitter. What is that about? Something between him and the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission that there could be some problems there. What, What is that about? When you you make a, a filing there are, of this kind, there are certain rules in which you have to do it at a certain amount of in a certain time frame uh, in a certain way, and it looks that he may have not followed those rules to a T, and so it's possible uh, he will draw some scrutiny from the SEC. That remains to be seen, but uh, there's generally uh, this period of time where you have to say something and fill out the forms in a certain manner, then, and uh, it looks like he didn't do just that. So right, okay. Well, yeah, we'll see. I guess uh, there seems more like some technicalities uh, right now, but, you know, we'll see how that plays out. So, you know, the interesting thing, too, is for Twitter itself already, just in this announcement, right? And we're talking about Musk's 80 million followers and the popularity that he shares for Twitter. It's already been beneficial. I mean, their shares went up immediately on uh, the announcement of this. Sure. People are um, investors are reacting positively positively to this news. And uh, I would just add what I was going to say before with the with the SEC is that, you know, he, he's drawn more attention to the uh, the SEC is more aware of him and some of the things he does than perhaps other folks because he's already had past scuffles with uh, the agency. So uh, it's possible that his delay here might be something taken a little bit more seriously than if he was a, a quote unquote first offender. And in those cases that got him in trouble with the SEC, he was making statements on Twitter itself. So that's uh, it's right. kind of all comes full circle there. I suppose, but you know, it wouldn't matter if he had said them on Facebook or LinkedIn or any other platform. It still would be a problem with the SEC if if he's flouting their rules. So the platform itself isn't isn't so much the issue as him breaking potentially breaking rules that the SEC might you know have to uh, follow up on and possibly uh, fine him or whatever the case may be. But whether or not he's ruffled sellers with the SEC again uh, is still unclear at this point. But we do know that investors seem to be pretty happy about his uh, involvement in the company. And so at least that's uh, one positive takeaway. His term is set there for two years. Uh, so we'll see what kind of impact he can make right away. Obviously, we, we're talking about the content moderation. A lot of people think that uh, that's where the, the first impact he'll, he'll be making. But he's already said, you know, uh, on uh, he's already tweeted that he's hoping to make improvements in coming months. So we'll see how quick the action is. It's kind of interesting to see this guy, just tons of money buying himself into this company now. And now he has a say and a seat at the board. Sure. Well, look, a lot's happened just in the past 24 hours. Let's see what happens in the next few months. It <laughs> uh, should, be, should be pretty exciting. Sarah Needleman, tech reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. I'm, great. I'm happy to help out anytime. You know, some of this data, some of these studies can actually improve, like you said, our knowledge of of COVID in general and potentially be applied to therapeutics and vaccines down the road. Joining us now is Madison Muller, health reporter at Bloomberg News. Thanks for joining us, Madison. Thanks for having me, Oscar. 
Well, let's talk about this interesting notion regarding COVID-19. Are some people super immune to this? Uh, you know, you start off your story talking about how you've had COVID twice. Your sister managed to hold off uh, not getting it until just last week. I myself have not had COVID-19 throughout this whole pandemic, knock on wood. Hopefully it doesn't come for me soon. But, you know, there's a, a lot of uh, researchers and scientists looking at people that, that have fared well, have not gotten it, and seeing if there's something in their system that can help them avoid it even more. And obviously, looking towards vaccines and things like that, it could really help inform what we're doing on that side of things. So, Madison, tell us a little bit more about it. Yeah, so... I was really surprised to see the data that over 50% of the United States still hasn't had COVID. That was shocking to me as someone who's had it twice. And, you know, I have friends and family that haven't had it, but still that seems like a large number of people. But scientists in the UK started looking into this in the early stages of the pandemic. So prior to vaccines, they were looking at a cohort of healthcare workers in the UK and were looking at natural immunity. So these people, these super immune people in, in some rare instances seem to have a an immune response that's better than the average person and their bodies are able to actually fight off the virus before testing positive for it, which is really interesting. And, you know, some of this data, some of these studies can actually improve, like you said, our knowledge of of COVID in general and potentially be applied to therapeutics and vaccines down the road. Yeah, it was uh, pretty interesting what was happening with those healthcare workers. As you mentioned, they were able to fight off the virus before testing positive or even developing the antibodies to it. And the thought process was as well, COVID-19 is a coronavirus. There are other coronaviruses that we've been exposed to for our entirety of our lives, you know, things that cause a common cold and other things. And they do share some some commonality. So maybe because uh, their body was adept to fighting that off, they were able to fight off COVID-19. Yeah, that's exactly right. So T-cells, we all have them. It's they're a critical part of our immune response. And in these healthcare workers, exposure to prior coronaviruses, so these coronavirus, seasonal coronaviruses cause cold-like symptoms. And the thought process was that these healthcare workers, their prior exposure had primed their T-cells to recognize this uh, genetic part of, the, of COVID that is the same across coronaviruses and to then be able to have an immune response, an effective immune response, uh, without actually creating specific antibodies to fight off the virus, which is cool and really interesting. And yeah, so it was definitely, definitely, I think, a newer finding at the time. Um, and yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and part of it, too, you know, you go on to explain the article that, you know, right now when we're getting these COVID vaccines or we're getting infected naturally with it and we're fighting it off, you know, the body's targeting the spike protein. And what these healthcare mm -hmm. workers were doing was kind of targeting more the inside machinery of the virus instead of just the spike protein. That's why they might have been more adept to fighting it off. And that's kind of what scientists are looking for trying to understand. So when we do talk about future vaccine development or what a lot of people are really hoping for is some, you know, some kind of universal coronavirus vaccine that will target multiple ones at the same time. That's really what's going to get us a leg up on uh, these types of viruses. Right. Yeah. So that internal machinery stays the same. And spike proteins, as we know, that's something that easily mutates and can cause some issues for vaccine makers and for people trying to create therapeutics to fight the virus. So, 
that's why this study is so significant because they found an element of the coronavirus that you know can be recognized and because it doesn't change and so that could be something that's really effective in the future and it's something that some labs some researchers are looking into now and yeah well it'll be interesting to see if some people truly are super immune to this and really just uh, are able to fight it off and don't get it. Or if uh, maybe some people are just lucky, <laughs> maybe they've right. they've uh, taken all the proper precautions and have really just avoided it just well enough. But just an interesting notion uh, to think about. Madison Muller, health reporter at Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. She's never like tripping. It just sort of it open, opens her up a little bit so, right. and makes her feel better. And she told me that she's, she's always felt way higher, quote unquote, on, on Lexapro than she ever did microdosing. Joining us now is Luke Winky, contributor to Vox. Thanks for joining us, Luke. Thanks for having me. Well, I uh, wrote an interesting article about the new sober-ish. Uh, as <laughs> we've been going through a lot of changes when it comes to drugs in our country you know, we've, especially with marijuana has been one of those big changes, uh, a lot of relaxing of the attitudes and stigma towards it. Uh, we just did a story recently on the podcast talking about how drug tests are at a record high, mostly because of marijuana. Employers are dropping these requirements as a condition of employment because the attitudes around it are relaxing. So you wrote a little bit about that. And you also talked about microdosing. You know, a lot of people are go, uh, you know, using small amounts of uh, magic mushrooms and other things just to help improve their mood. And in all of this, everybody's kind of like coming around to it. So, uh, Luke, walk us through some of this. I think the reason we want to do this story is it's kind of what you just said. Like, there definitely is like a shift in perspective for like perception on kind of drug policy in America. You really see it everywhere. There's more people using marijuana than in the past. There's more people that are pretty ambivalent about marijuana laws, like kind of in a shockingly short span of time that people become, you know, way more amenable to the idea of people using marijuana medicinally or recreationally. There's a lot of traction on sort of psychologists using like MDMA or psilocybin. Actually, you know, I don't actually know how that's pronounced. Magic mushrooms. It's one of those words you see written out, but I don't know how it's pronounced. <laughs> I, I've seen it as a, a psilocybin. Is that what I've heard? <laughs> psilocybin. All right, we'll go with that. Um, yeah, like using that in like talk therapy for like for PTSD, uh, you know, patients and things like that. And it's, it's, I think the thing I found sort of interesting as I dug into this stuff, it's, it's, weirdly kind of like bipartisan like even like a state like texas you know who has done some pretty hardline right-wing stuff and their legislator recently has kind of cleared the way to use psychedelics to study them as how they can be applied kind of medicinally so yeah that that was kind of the impetus kind of diving in and then from there i spoke to some people who have microdosed or just are using sort of things that 20 30 years ago we'd be considered to be street drugs as part of their kind of day-to-day -day sort of sober routine, like having a spritz of uh, psilocybin and uh, that being part of like a, what they would consider to be a sober lifestyle. Yeah. Like those two things, being on drugs and being sober, the, the lines I think are becoming sort of blurred there in, in, in an interesting way. Well, you wrote it in the article pretty well. So what all these things that were once considered contraband are being claimed by wellness culture, you know, anything mm -hmm. to make you feel a little bit better. And it's kind of making this new definition of sobriety, right? And you think about uh, things like people taking antidepressants and, and whatnot. And I know it helps a lot of people, but a lot of people don't feel normal, don't feel good after a while. 
And so these things can be like an alternative and no one's going to say, well, they're on antidepressants. They're high right now. And, you know, if you're doing really low doses of the magic mushrooms, I know that's a very popular one right now. It might not carry you to the point of like you're high and incapacitated. And so this is kind of what we're talking about. The stigmas around some of these things are breaking down Mm -hmm. and, and people are opening themselves up to it. Yeah, yeah, I spoke to one woman who has been through kind of the whole gamut of uh, trying to make themselves sort of live better in the sort of therapeutic or medicinally acceptable way. You know, it went through years of therapy, so read a bunch of self-help books, you know, just tried to make positive changes, you know, been through a lot of antidepressants. And she, I think she kind of told me something interesting that I think gets to the crux of the piece is that like she feels like she started microdosing on and magic mushrooms and says that that has improved her mood, says that she never really feels high, just kind of, kind of brightens her up to, you know, the world around her. She's, she's never like tripping. It just sort of it open, opens her up a little bit and, right. and makes her feel better. And she told me that she, she's always felt way higher, quote unquote, on, on Lexapro than she ever did microdosing, that she felt way more under the influence when she was going through the more sort of traditional or prescriptive path to trying to improve her mood than she did when she kind of got out into the wilderness a little bit with uh, how she was trying to make herself feel better. So, yeah, I, I think what, what you're saying is right. That like, I guess it's it's kind of trite and old school now, the idea that like, you know, if you're, you know, going to. Right. Eat some magic mushrooms. You're gonna go <laughs> run into traffic or whatever. But exactly. even, even despite that, that that attitude has shifted quite dramatically in the last couple of years. And the tough thing with all of this is that the science around all of this microdosing and and even some of these other drugs is very thin right now. As we know, mm. they're all Schedule One drugs. Even marijuana is on the federal level, which is we've heard for many many years. It's always limited the amount of research that we can do on these things. And now I know states are opening themselves up to it more so they can do that research, but that's always been a problem that it's kind Mm -hmm. of coming into this wellness culture area, but the research surrounding it is thin. We just, a lot of it is anecdotal stuff that we see, you know, some limited studies that we get that show benefits, but across the board, we haven't proven those benefits yet. That's been, like you said, that's been an issue forever. It's, it's, it's too hard to, stu- to study some of these drugs in America, they, I, especially the weirdly enough, what is it, it's a, most of the red tape is around cannabis to this day. Like that, that's, you, we would both consider that to be one of the more milder, more, one of the more mainstream accepted drugs in our culture. And yet that one's always been really hard to study. Uh, interestingly though, like I, I spoke to a few experts in drug policy and there is like a lot of, again, I'm not like a doctor, so I can't really speak to the like, the, the, the specific specificity of what the evidence is saying, but a lot of studies have come back saying that there is a positive correlation with therapy and MDMA and therapy and yeah. psychedelics and things like that. I mean, that was, that kind of took me back. The idea of someone, you know, uh, taking a party drug before going into talk therapy kind of blew my mind. But I mean, the research says what it is, you know? And uh, so I, I, I was surprised at, I kind of went into the story assuming that a lot of the research was going to be pretty thin and inconclusive. And I was surprised to kind of find that that wasn't necessarily the case. Well, as attitudes are relaxing more surrounding this and we are getting more research done, as you mentioned, I just like the way you put it. It's kind of manifesting this new definition of sobriety. So we'll keep an eye out for how all of this keeps developing. Luke Winky, contributor to Vox. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. 